0: Hi, Weirdos. We are really excited to offer you a special edition of our Season 3.
1: Bonus episode.
0: Bonus episode, and today we are doing an interview with one of our favorite people. We're a huge fan of his work, and we're excited that he has agreed to be here with us, Dr. David Dalt. So, uh, David Dalt is um, a friend of the show. He's got a PhD in religion from Vanderbilt, Godors, and a master's degree from Columbia Theological Seminary, and... Um, He is also the host of Things Not Seen, one of our favorite shows. And when he began Things Not Seen, he was teaching in the religion department of a liberal arts college in Memphis. He is currently a visiting scholar for theology and media at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. And this fall, Dr. Dalt will join the full-time faculty at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. Welcome, Dr. David Dalt.
2: Hey, I'm so glad to be here, and I'm a big, big fan of Weird Religion. Thank you for the work that you all are doing. It's fantastic.
0: Well, I have to tell you, before we get into our conversation, our official conversation, that one of the best compliments that I ever received as a teacher came from one of our mutual friends, Dr. Patu Burns, and he Hmm. told me that my teaching was like your teaching, and that was a huge compliment. So I thought I would share that with you, because I know you think pretty highly of his teaching skills, too.
2: (laughs) I learned so much from Patu Burns. Uh, everything that I do that is good in teaching. I, I I write him repeatedly and I tell him, I stole all this from you, thank you. And he <laughs> uh, he demurs, but but yeah,
1: I'm so I'm honored. Thank you. So much Vanderbilt love on these shows. I know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a little disorienting.
0: It's a sweet for me, okay? sweet group of people. <laughs> you you Harvard people are so hardcore. No, it's just that the Harvard oh, yeah. people weren't
1: friends with each other, and so I have no colleagues <laughs> really to talk to.
0: It's we got a lot of love. I think that
1: was the problem, really. <laughs>
0: So, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, Doctor Dalt is here, and he has agreed to talk with us um, about a show that is in the theme for this this season, which um, is sci-fi and fantasy. And so, today we're talking about Jessica Jones. Mm. Yes, Doctor Dalt, what do you like about Jessica Jones, the series?
2: Well, let me actually take you back uh, beyond uh, the beginning of Jessica Jones to a really good book by Sarah Vowell, who's a she does a lot of work on NPR and she's written a couple of kind of really funny history books. And one of them is called "The Wordy Shipmates." Ooh. and in the word and the wordy shipmates is about the Puritans who came over uh, in in the early days before America was America. And one of the things about the Puritans is that they were hyper hyper Calvinist and so they have this this view that you know their fate you know not their actions but their fate ultimately is determined from before they were born from the very foundation of the universe. You know, the, they're, they're kind of five-point Calvinists. so this is, you know, unconditional election. And and Sarah Vowell tells this story of a woman who is so overwrought with the idea that she's a sinner and she can't do anything about it that she takes her young child and throws her young child down a well and kills the child because she says, what does it matter? Wow. wow. What could I possibly do? You know, if, I, if, if I'm going to go to hell anyway, I'm going to go to hell anyway, and if I'm going to go to and it doesn't matter. Wow. And, and so, the kind of ultimate nihilism that comes from the notion that you have no control hmm. over your destiny, over your actions, over anything that really matters in the universe. And that's why I want to talk about Jessica Jones because Jessica Jones, particularly in the first season, that is the central question. What wow. is agency? What does it mean to have control? And what does it mean to have an incredible physical power uh, which Jessica Jones has, but no if you control. don't, if you don't have the volition to actually act on your own desires, and so that's where I want to kind of start. But uh, I, I'm not sure how much uh, Dr. Payne you have seen, uh, and you have said that you just. Uh, uh, that you just um started watching the show. So tell me a little bit about kind of uh, where you two are at with the show and what what you know about
1: it. yeah, so i'm so I'm new to the show. I've perused it many times, you know, just kind of flicking through Netflix and not watching anything, which is my mostly my my major way of interacting with Netflix is not <laughs> not watching. Um, but I just last night watched the first two episodes of season one, harrowing and terrifying, and I kind of hated it, frankly, because I don't <laughs> like feeling afraid. And it's the first ep- The pilot is scary, man.
0: Yeah, it is really scary. I was an early adopter of Jessica Jones, in part because I'm a huge fan of the lead actress. Um, I watched her in Veronica Mars way back in the day. Uh, But, yeah, so um, I think that the way that I have sold the first season of Jessica Jones is to say that it is a woman's worst nightmare. It is the scariest villain that I can imagine For me personally, as a woman. Because just what you said, uh, David, which is that it is a villain who takes away a person's agency. And so it doesn't matter how powerful you are Mm -hmm. if you don't have control over your own
1: Yeah, so the villain right away, I think, and this is not a spoiler, you find this out in the first episode Mm -hmm. or so, which is that the villain has this power where apparently he can just almost like control people's minds. It's almost like a Jedi mind trick kind of motif. Like he just comes up to somebody and says... I'm going to come in your house. And they're like, yes, come in my house. Like no matter what he says, you just do that. Is that, is that how that plays out then with, with the villain? Yeah. And so Leah and
2: Brian, you're exactly right. And I want to dig into this a little bit, but uh, the character Kilgrave is Mm -hmm. modeled on uh, a character from the comic books known as the purple man. Mm -hmm. And so this is exactly, exactly the power is it's the power of suggestion, Mm -hmm. but it has some limitations and we can maybe dig into that uh, as we continue going but Brian, you said you hated it when you, uh, and and (laughs) explain to me kind of the nature (laughs) of that hatred. What was it that you disliked about these first two episodes? So
1: I heard, I heard from a friend who is a single guy who does a lot of dating apps. He said that that some dating apps like Match.com use as one of their primary indicators of whether two people will be compatible with each other. One question, namely, do you like horror films? Mm. And, I, I I do not like horror films. I like the idea of horror films. I will watch horror films. I hate feeling afraid like that. It's just like a, <laughs> so I'm I just fall on that side of the divide. Although I love Twin Peaks, and Twin Peaks is also horrifying, but it's a kind of absurdist, surreal horror that isn't mm-hmm. real enough to really get to me. But like watching a motif of like, say, women being abused and so on, like on the show, I just I just found it like just bone chillingly terrifying. Or when the when the woman murders her parents who love her so much, it just like went too deep for me like really fast and so can i, I
0: can i ask yeah. a follow-up yeah
1: i mean yeah please because
0: you both i believe are fathers of daughters
1: yes correct
0: um was that and i'm a i'm the mother of sons but uh so it, i felt a little distance but did you feel like did you make that connection or to the women in some like maybe. capacity in your lives maybe. did you feel that
1: maybe i don't know what about you
2: david Well, that's a very good question. Let me take a step back from that and and then maybe move into an answer. So one of the things about the show, uh, these first two episodes particularly, what it sets up for the viewer, is that Jessica Jones is incredibly powerful. Like, she's physically strong. Mm -hmm. uh, Kind of a Superman strong. Can pick up cars, can throw really heavy things, can take a punch, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But it also establishes through these first two episodes that she has had a relationship with Kilgrave that was not a consensual relationship right. he basically saw that she was powerful had desire for her and used his suggestive mutation power to basically make her his puppet
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And that included, as we find out later in the series, sexually, as well as kind of being a, a play toy in terms of, you know, at one point in, in these first two episodes, uh, another woman says, did he make you jump? He made me jump up and down. He made me jump so high. And so, Kilgrave does things simply because they're fun and he gets off on the power, But but there's also a very adult aspect to this in the fact that there is non-consensual sex that is part of what Kilgrave is after. As the father of a daughter, that especially terrifies me, mm. not even worrying about, you know, someone with superpowers, but worrying instead about my daughter being a situation where for whatever societal reason, she might feel like she does not have the power to say no. Mm. And that's what I think these first two episodes do so well, is that they use these superpower tropes as a way of getting at a very real problem that women face, and that is our society robs them of agency at every level, and even the most powerful of them still find themselves in incredibly compromised situations. Mm. Now, I'm not a woman, Leah, so please tell me um, <laughs> kind of what, what, you know, what am I getting right and wrong in this?
0: Well, gosh, you know, I think that we just went really deep really quickly, which is interesting. <laughs> um, okay, one thing that I think that I found so terrifying about this, especially the first two episodes, but the entire first season, and I, I'm not caught up, In the current brand new season. But I found Uh that the first season was way scarier to me because they show in a superhero context, like as you mentioned, you know, she has this superhuman strength, what uh, is very commonly reported um, amongst women who are victims of of abuse and violence, which is the idea that they have mixed feelings, like they they haven't even sorted their own feelings out about what has happened to them, and the mm. tremendous amount of guilt that the person uh, that the women often report. And so, yeah, that one was actually, I think that's the the scariest part of that uh, for me was the inner turmoil that they show Jessica Jones having to manage as, mm. you know, as she's... Like, on the one hand, on the surface, it's a, it's a very um, traditional superhero origin story. You know, you have, like, the tragic past and you have all these things, but then they just shoot this very um, timely metaphor... <laughs> into um, into the story. And then, of course, David Tennant, the guy who, for Doctor Who fans and fans, he's been in a number of really excellent um, projects. He is so scary because he's also so charming, right? Like, mm-hmm. that he's so likable. In fact, I was just speaking with a friend of mine um, about, we were talking about um, abuse in the academy and specifically instances of, like, sexual harassment or abuse and I was asking her do you think that me too could ever realistically you know come to the academy and we had this long conversation about the the stakes involved in even reporting harassment um and you know that and that is not the same as like acts of sexual violence. So yeah, wow, David, you really we, we went there really fast. but yeah, I, I think that that's what's so horrifying about this show to me personally. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and so let's let's kind of spin that out. So one of the things that that Jessica Jones does really well, you said, is setting up this this polarity between the charmer who is also incredibly violent and incredibly dangerous. Uh, and if we think about domestic violence, you just hit the nail on the head, like that you should I leave and all the pressures to stay, and the societal pressures that make somebody feel like they can't leave a situation of abuse. Um and this is this is very much the the whole arc of that first season, is how Jessica Jones, Managed to extricate herself from that abuse and how she uses that knowledge and wisdom to help others, or not in the case of these first two episodes, to ex- to escape that abuse. But one of the other pieces about this that's so powerful for me is how well they present post traumatic stress, mm. and and clearly uh, they do that through camera and cinematography and through sound design. But it's clear that. Um, Jessica Jones is having flashes of things that are not presently there that are coming up for her, just like a person with PTSD. And she's using coping mechanisms that as a person with PTSD myself, I use. So she uses kind of repetitive OCD behaviors like the naming of streets where she was growing up and other Mm. things that kind of ground her in place. And so all of that is, you know, the the notion of trauma is is another very important thing to be thinking about here in this context.
0: David, you mentioned um, the idea that you started by talking about this Calvinist woman, this clearly traumatized, very um, extremely Calvinistic kind of view of the world. And you thought that Jessica Jones' story was reflective of that. Can you say more about what you noticed? Um,
2: So much to say about that. Okay. Uh, First of all, um, Jessica Jones' happens, her her story world happens within the wider story world of Daredevil. And Daredevil happens within the wider story world of Spider-Man, mm. okay? What do we learn from each of these? Spider-Man is your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Daredevil is the devil of Hell's Kitchen. Jessica Jones, Daredevil, Spider-Man, they're very located in place. Like, geography is very important. Mm. And and the 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 notion that this is somehow a universal no, it's very localized, which is why things like uh, Jessica Jones saying the street names is so much a, a part of this. Um, and so, if we think about that Calvinist trope that I started out with, this notion that somehow um, no no matter where we go in the universe, we are damned. Um, this wider universe that Jessica Jones takes place in is a universe that has location as a very powerful piece and location both for Daredevil. And I know that uh Brian, you said you haven't seen Daredevil haven't seen it. very much. Yeah. But so place in Daredevil is very important too. So the church where Daredevil kind of has connection, like the the familial, the the connective tissue of location, these are all very important. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting to me about Jessica Jones is that because it happens within this wider universe of Daredevil Daredevil is a Catholic universe. Mm-hmm. So so one of the things that Matt uh, that Matt Murdock the Daredevil is constantly wrestling with is is my violence redemptive? Mm-hmm. Am I am I making a difference if I use my if I use my violence to a good end does that redeem the violence? That's a that's a real question within Daredevil. So the notion about intentionality is incredibly important. Mm. Jessica Jones has at least in this first season she wrestles with the question of intentionality. There is no there's no possibility of intention for the victims of Kilgrave. They're literally not in control of their actions and yet as the as the the track star who who falls under his his sway says, I kind of wanted to do it even though I didn't want to. Right. And so there's this there's this deep kind of mischievous polarity about what does it mean to say that we have free will in a universe? What does it mean to say that we have agency in a universe?
1: So, can I ask this? Th- can I ask you this, yeah. David, on that exact point? So, it, I, right away, we find out that Jessica Jones is faced with a very harrowing choice. She can actually try to leave when she finds yes. out Kilgrave is still alive and she finds out that Kilgrave is involved in the missing tracks, you know, the track, the, the, the girl who's involved with the track in college. When she finds that out, she's gonna leave because she just thinks, nope, there's no chance of winning. However, you know she she in a kind of classic i guess movie tv trope she gets she decides at the last minute to confront the thing and actually use her volition to go back and try to rescue the girl and then basically by the end of the second episode she's ready to take this on and in fact she's even found a weak point and she's ready to exploit it so uh, does that notion complicate the idea that there's a calvinist reading here where everything is i mean there's, there's one specific moment where things are under control but she seems like she's deciding her own fate in a very open universe, right? In that sense. I love that. So the history of Calvinism itself is exactly the
2: wrestling with this very question. Because if mm. we look at, for example, the Synod of Dort and the Council of Orange, it was exactly around this question. What kind of will do we have mm. over against a God making choices? Mm. And so let's first of all ask, what kind of if, if Kilgrave is taking the God role right now, what kind of God is Kilgrave? And in the second episode, Jessica Jones names it, this isn't God, this is the devil, Yes, is yes, what she said. Mm-hmm, yes. and, and so, you know, and I, as I was re-watching these episodes, I thought a lot about the David Blumenthal book Facing the Abusing God. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about what does it mean to think about an all-powerful being that has uh, malice instead of goodness at the heart of the actions and the universe that is created. And that that seems to be the question. So, you know, a, a good staunch five-point calvinist will tell you that god loves the damned by damning them mm. mm-hmm. and so and so when we think about when we think about a moral compass that can that can swing that wide mm-hmm. we then begin to ask the question of you know yes if if we're talking about a calvinist universe we still have to wrestle with the five or six hundred years of calvinism that have asked the very question what does it mean to say that god is sovereign mm. and what does that what what does that require God to be Mm -hmm. in our universe? And it's a very open question for the Calvinist viewpoint, but I'd love to hear, because you come from different traditions than one that's necessarily rooted in the Calvinist faith, help me to understand kind of how you view God's omnipotence and God's sovereignty in your own traditions.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: Oh, that's great. Uh, Well played. I can tell that you are a skilled interviewer, Dr. Dalt. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, I hadn't really thought of, it because I enjoyed the the Catholicity of Daredevil so much, and mm-hmm. I know this isn't an episode that is focused on it. I I really enjoyed um, Daredevil, and I have to say that its presentation of Catholicism, I'm not Catholic, I know that you are, David, you could probably speak more to this, but it just, the, the idea that it, it created a world wherein someone's, um, religious identity was just like the air that they breathe it, it um, of course he is interested in um, wrestling with this in conversation with the church because it's just a part of him himself I just love that aspect of of daredevil because so many times people have these cartoonish portraits of of um, religion and so I hadn't really thought of Jessica Jones as representing an alternative theological vision But now I've got that on my mind. And I think that my own, I come from the Wesleyan um, tradition, which is um, very much, I mean, I come from the Pentecostal tradition, which is highly influenced by Wesley, which is essentially, uh, it comes out of the Anglican tradition, which is sort of trying to like make nice between, you know, Catholicism and the Reformed tradition. So in some ways, I think that I viewed, jessica jones as representing a rebellion against that calvinist worldview i'd like to hear brian's thoughts on that as well like about the rebellion yeah i think that i think she's trying to overturn that i think do you do you You guys agree?
1: Well, yeah, I guess that was where I was, that was my point just before, was that she's making these choices. And if he's the devil, this raises the question of who is God then? And if it's not him, then it's something else. It's not the determinist fate, devil, God, right?
2: And this is the problem that Anselm leaves us with in his ontological proof. Because once you get beyond the realm of human knowledge and human human ability and human volition, any more powerful being fits the category. God as a being, the greater than which we cannot imagine. Well, once you've gone beyond the imaginative, which is what we see here in these superpowers, then we have an open question: it does does a does a does a devil or a demigod that shows up and starts, ex, you know, exercising these beyond natural abilities, does that make that entity worthy of worship or even mistaken worship? Mm. And so, you know. At least for the first two episodes, there is no rival power for Kilgrave mm-hmm. because because Jessica Jones has not yet decided to fully exploit that. And he is still, even though he is thwarted in some ways and he's weakened, Kilgrave, the purple man, is still very much in control of the narrative throughout these first two episodes. Like everything that Jessica Jones does basically falls into his web. Mm. Right. Like he's he's set up the entire you know, even to the point of shooting the parents, which we've mentioned before. So, there, so he, he kidnaps uh, a woman, not with the intention of having a relationship with that woman, but but getting the attention of Jessica Jones and getting Jessica Jones back under his control. That is his ultimate goal in these first two episodes, and nothing that happens in the episodes thwarts that. I mean, he's still the God, even though we don't like him.
1: Right. Although there's that little sliver of hope at the end of episode two, that now she's discovered the weakness and now things are going to turn. Speaking of Calvinism, okay, let me ask you about this, David. When I think of Calvinism, like hardcore Calvinism, I'm thinking depravity. Like Mm -hmm. total depravity. And I was sort of watching the first two episodes thinking about how deeply, I mean, this is one of the comments about the shows is that you have this hero, Jessica, who's deeply flawed. And Mm -hmm. this is a trope that's made its way into a lot of hero movies. I mean, the kind of revival of the Batman trilogy under Christopher Nolan played heavily into this with the Joker. Like maybe the Batman and Joker are actually the same, you know, in some way. And so she's deeply flawed. Um, where, where do you see, I mean, where do you see the show interacting with this idea of depravity? It certainly is everywhere, but it's, it's pretty oppressive on that, on that front at at points, it felt to me.
2: Yeah. And I kind of want to give Jessica Jones a pass on that because I think she's Mm self-medicating. I think that the, the, the trauma that she's experienced gives her a reason to be, I mean, we can see this in, in hypervigilant people, right? They, they do things to numb the always being on guard. Right. Uh, and there's a variety of ways that they can do that through self-stimulation or through chemicals or through what have you. Jessica Jones does all the, all this. So she has risky sex. She has a really bad relationship with alcohol. She has, mm. uh, she has a very low, uh, threshold for accepting, like she'll get into a dangerous situation at the drop of a hat. Her entire world right now is, is kind of designed to be self-stimming right. in that way, in a kind of protective way. So, mm. you know, I, I don't, I don't see her as necessarily being depraved so much as I see her as kind of reacting to the depravity of the world now around her. There's certainly characters who are bought into the depravity. So there's a lawyer character that she interacts with. That lawyer character is completely brought bought into the cynicism oh, of yeah. the world. This is a mm-hmm. Trinity you know,
1: from the Matrix character. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, carry carry something. She's
0: magnetic. Yeah. Oh my gosh.
2: She is, but she says, you know, if 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 a person like Kilgrave existed, I would hire him to voir dire all my juries. Right. You know? so right. How depraved is that? But then also, I mean, we, we see the depravity of Kilgrave. So Kilgrave could do anything that he wished with this power. He could He could extract any good and yet he chooses to basically make the entire world about him to the point that people die or are degraded because of his choices. So, I think about the children that are told to go into the closet because they annoy him to the point where one child says, I need to go to the bathroom, and he says, go in the closet. Right. And, you know, he cares nothing about others. He's a sociopath. And that mm-hmm. sociopathy to me is is the equivalent of, of what I would consider to be a Calvinist total depravity. That's really uh, where we see it in our current age. I see.
0: I I have a question. I forget now who mentioned it. But basically, oh, David, you did. The idea that in Daredevil, the hero is wrestling with the idea that you can be redeemed through violence. Um, And Jessica Jones never seems to have that on the table. Which I think, you know, if we look at her relationship to Kilgrave, you can see how she would be very suspicious of that idea, I would think. Because she has seen, like, how violence can be coerced or you know you can you can be driven to acts of violence in in circumstances that are outside of your control but the thing that you ha- had me thinking about was is there a gendered quality to that because the the character in Daredevil like he's introduced through the to the idea that violence can be redemptive through sport, right? His dad is a boxer and there's all kinds of interesting stuff. I wish we had a whole episode about Daredevil, all kinds of interesting stuff about like class and its relationship to like how um how men express their manliness. Um Jessica Jones seems to only uh, at least in the beginning of the series in the first two episodes, she seems um to be very suspicious of the idea that her acts of violence could redeem anything. I don't know. What did what did you two think of that?
1: Brian, do you want to step in well, on I'll that? I'll only say that I wondered. I, I thought your analysis of her self-medicating and and the kind of secondary depravity, if you want to call it that, that, that comes to her, that makes a lot of sense. I also wondered, as someone who doesn't know the backstory, there's always a backstory on these shows, like, are we supposed to think that she had a totally different personality and a different outlook on violence before all this stuff? My sense of her, just my read of the show, seeing those two episodes in isolation, was that this is kind of like, she's a dark character. I mean, there's mm-hmm. something here that that has a prehistory, um, and that certainly was taken in a horrible direction by the abuse, too. But, yeah, I don't know. What do you think?
2: Well, I'll say that, you know, the the series— goes into what she was like before she gained her powers, and it seems mm. like she had a different personality. Also, what oh. she was like before she met Kilgrave, oh. and it, and there was there was a question actually about kind of how she should be, now that she had these powers, how she should be in the world, and she was actually going to kind of go the more pure superhero route, oh. and it was her interaction with Kilgrave that actually turned her to this, Wow! but in light of both of your questions and responses, I think about something that my wife said to me the other day that I had never thought about before. She said to me, I have spent my entire life looking up at men because she's five feet tall. And I, I was thinking wow. about the physical, the physical interaction of, of just being embodied as a woman is going to change the way that you think about violence. Even if you yeah. have superpowers, you know, of course, Matt Murdock raised like, you know, the son of a boxer is going to think that the first thing to do is to throw a fist. That's not the first thing that a woman would think you know, I would say. Now, I, Leah, I may be wrong about this. Dr. Payne, I may be wrong about this. But I. But one of the things that strikes me is that even when women have power, they constantly need to find ways to sublimate that power because if they, in, in the world that we live in, if they deploy that power too directly, it will backfire on them even if they're deploying it in the same way that a man would. Is that a fair characterization?
0: Yeah, you know, that was sort of behind the question um, that I was asking. I was ruminating on this idea about why, why do we even as viewers receive Jessica Jones and um, the Daredevil differently, right? Because there's something that seems like naturally heroic, you know, when you're watching Daredevil and they have these really beautifully choreographed, uh, fight scenes, it's almost like watching ballet. And then when you watch Jessica Jones, there's something, you, it's such a different experience. So I think that they, whoever directed this series, did a really good job of even just showing through like the camera angles how we receive like women committing acts of violence in a different way. And I, I want to come back to Brian's earlier comment, because I think to me, they're connected about like what her life was like before, because a really pivotal relationship is this sort of surrogate sister that she has. Mm. Um, and this, the, the love that she and her sister have for each other. And I think that I don't want to spoil anything, but this, um, this relation, this love relationship that the two have um, is, is, is the kind of sustaining relationship throughout um, her life, and it's it's actually a really beautiful um, moment. I don't want to spoil anything. Is that the Trisha? <laughs> is
1: that the Trish character, the talk show host? Yeah, is that the sister? Okay.
0: Yes, and that relationship um, develops throughout the the first season, throughout the series, really, but um, and kind of comes to a redemptive moment in a really important way hmm. um, in the series.
1: Mm-hmm. So. David, as we try to bring this thing in for a landing here, I wonder if you could ask, I wonder if we could ask you to give us a kind of, I don't know, give us like a kind of a theological guide just briefly to, let's say I wanted to continue to watch Jessica Jones past my fear and horror at the show and some of the motifs there. Give me a little theological primer on what what I can look for throughout season one and really throughout the series as it now exists here as we close.
2: Well, clearly, uh, as your listeners will have picked up, I have a very cockamamie view towards this this uh, series. Uh, I, I cannot not read it through a theological lens. And so, mm-hmm. if some if somebody wants to come to it from a theological lens, realize that it's going to upset your expectations of the masculinity of our faith mm-hmm. and the masculinity of God, because it's going to ask some questions about what it would be like to have a world that is more ordered towards the experience of of feminine embodiment. Mm. And that's not something that we talk about a lot in in theological circles. The kind of neutered the neutered white male body is kind of the the er theological body. I really love the fact that that uh, Jessica Jones both makes me think about what it's like as a woman to take a punch. Also to throw a punch, but also to have to navigate socially to avoid the possibility of any punching happening. Like all of that for me as an empathetic viewer shows up continuously throughout this, this first season and continuously throughout her relationship with Kilgrave and continuously throughout the rest of the series. So for me, those those are just some pieces that I find really interesting really just thought-provoking about Jessica Jones. It's a, it's a series I've gone back and re-watched a couple of times because I find it so fruitful around these kinds of questions. And I just, I'm so thankful to get the chance to nerd out about it here <laughs> with, with people like you. So thank you again for that. Well,
0: David, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Dalt, I should say. <laughs> and thank <laughs> you for <laughs> applying your brilliance uh, to this, this pop culture artifact. It was just an absolute joy to speak with you.
2: Likewise, and please keep up the great work. I'm such a fan of the show.
1: Thank you so much, David. Likewise.